Turn with me this morning back to the book of Acts as we continue in our uh, series through the book of Acts uh, to chapter 4 again this morning. We'll be looking at uh, verses 23 through 31, but I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter again just to give us a little more of the, the context of this uh, story here, this long story. So Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's holy word. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on him and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to, you, to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved." Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And then our passage for this morning. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal 
and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. I'll end our reading there. Again, we're finishing here this morning one of the longest single accounts or stories in the book of Acts. Uh, began all the way back at the beginning of chapter 3. Recall that we looked back at, at several weeks ago with uh, Peter and John healing this man who was crippled from birth. And we noted then it wasn't just uh, a healing, but it was uh, an opportunity to give Christ not only to this man, but to the crowds that gathered. Peter preached Christ to them. Uh, and then chapter 4, the story goes on. Uh, chapter 4, as we read, begins as they were speaking, as, as Peter was preaching. Uh, this, uh, these powerful rulers come up and arrest them and jail them. And the next day they're brought before an even larger gathering of powerful people. It was really a, a sort of David and Goliath face-off, uh, an interrogation that we looked at last time. Um, we saw how the disciples lived out and experienced some of Jesus' promises in that scene. His promise to be with them, to uh, equip them by the Holy Spirit with what they should say in such a time. Um, we looked at, uh, in the last sermon, the, the way the leaders uh, noted several things about Peter and John. Um, they noticed their boldness. Uh, they were amazed that they were uneducated, sort of backwoods, uneducated men. And they uh, noticed that they must have been with Jesus. Uh, as well. And so the leaders were, were rather confounded by them and by this circumstance, and so they, they let them go with a warning. Uh, and we've also seen all along in this story that the church has continued to grow. It's grown by uh, the thousands. And that brings us to our passage today, beginning in verse 23, where, where Peter and John are released. They go to their friends, to some part of the church there, and reported everything to them. And you can imagine how eager. Uh, their friends, uh, the church, was to hear from Peter and John and, and to see them released. They were, uh, they were good friends. They, they were important leaders in the church. And they were eager to hear uh, what had happened in this trial of sorts. Uh, it, it would have consequence for the rest of the church, for sure. Uh, and certainly, in part, what Peter and John uh, would have reported there was good news, right? They, they weren't punished. They were released. Uh, they, they were safe to go back to their friends. And, and we ought to also notice something else that happily frames this whole story. It, it began with uh, the boldness of Peter and John, uh, not only preaching at the temple, but then particularly speaking before this powerful assembly of, of their opponents. Um, and then this, this whole story ends with the church's boldness. Uh, at the end of verse 31, um, they began to speak the word of God. With boldness, um, But I want you to realize this, this scene is not that simple. It's not just good news of their release and uh, bold, uh, easy boldness for the gospel. Um, remember, more particularly, what happened to Peter and John, what, what they would have reported. Uh, the Sanhedrin did uh, let them go, but, but with threats, right? Uh, threats that they were never to speak again in the name of Jesus, um, by implication, on, on some pain of, of real punishment next time, right? Maybe permanent imprisonment, maybe even death. These are the people who had just put Jesus to death not long before. Um, and they, they were released, 
But the church faces these, these dire threats now. It would have been part of, their, part of their report. This is the first persecution that the church now faces. And they couldn't know exactly what that's going to mean for them and their families and their lives. How easy would it be for some of those who had, had eagerly joined the church and eagerly responded to Peter's preaching now to say, well, this isn't what I signed up for. Right? This is... I can't risk going to prison or having my family suffer without income or suffer this separation. And so this is really a, a crisis point for this fledgling church um, as they consider that. You know, people throughout church history have, have faced such a thing. People even in modern history, uh, maybe even more, face such a situation. Imagine, uh, though we don't typically think about this so much in our country, imagine the government comes this week and says, None of you may speak ever again in the name of Jesus. Or we'll, we'll bulldoze your church and we'll put all the men in prison. All right, imagine the, the congregational meeting we'd, we'd have immediately after that. What are we going to do? Well, we have a, a bit of the, the congregational meeting, if, as it were, uh, that this church here had recorded that we get to look in, listen in, and see how they responded uh, this morning. And I, I'd remind you, of course, this is not a perfect church. It's a church made up of sinners here in Acts chapter 4. But they provide for us a model of, of church life, a model of, of understanding what the church is on the one hand, and then also, and these are the things we'll look at this morning, a model approach to prayer in crisis and in trouble. So those are the two things we want to look at particularly this morning. I want you to consider the model of church life in communion with the risen uh, and living Christ this morning. Uh, so looking at number one on your outline, a couple of simple and brief points here. We see them as a community, a community. Uh, when Peter and John are released, what do they do? Verse 23, they went to their own companions. Uh, or, or they went, in the ESV, has to their friends. Literally in the Greek, it just says they went to their own. Uh, they went to their own ones. It's, it's someone who's close to them, right? This is uh, some part of the church at this point uh, almost certainly can't be the whole church in Jerusalem. We, we know it numbers in the, in the thousands and thousands at this point. Uh, but some, some group of the church that they're close to here. Um, and here's a place again to make the simple observation that the church was and the church is uh, a community of, of supportive friends. People who are eager to hear from you, to pray with you. Uh, and that's, that's simply what happens here. The New Testament describes the church uh, in those kind of terms. Ephesians 2, Paul says, you are members of the household or the family of God. I were to think of it as a family. In Romans 12, Paul says, love each other with brotherly affection. That's uh, how we're to relate to each other as brothers and sisters. In Galatians 6, Paul says, again, we are the, the family of faith or the household of faith. Uh, that was reflected in, in chapter 1 of Acts when we uh, looked at several things that it said that that earliest group, that, that 100 or so, uh, were devoted to. They were devoted to fellowship. And we considered that word, the Greek word behind it, to koinonia, not just being together, but, but giving and sharing uh, with each other uh, generously. So Peter and John's first move is to go uh, to the church family for support, for prayer, for fellowship. And it's simply another example of the fact that uh, though it is, sadly for many, the church, in fact, is not uh, simply something that you attend. 
It's not a place that you go to. Uh, it's who you are. The church is who you are. It's a community. It's, it's a family. Uh, united in Christ and, and extending his love to each other. Uh, certainly extending it, his love beyond the church as well, as well but first as a, as a family, as the household of God. Um, we, all, we see also, again, then secondly, letter B on your outline, a, a culture of prayer here. A culture of prayer. So they go to their friends, they go to the church, and, and what do they immediately do? Verse 24, when they heard this, when they'd heard the report, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord. And then we have the prayer recorded here. Or I, would, I would assume it's some portion of the prayer. It only takes a few seconds to read it. It's probably um, some portion of the prayer that was, that was prayed here that Luke, by the Holy Spirit, has recorded for us. Probably one, one person praying and, and everyone joining in uh, in spirit, as it were. And this is simply the next instance of many in the book of Acts uh, of the church coming together to pray corporately, to pray together. And we considered that, that topic in our evening worship last week, uh, just a week ago. The, the, the uh, benefits, the blessings, the opportunities of the church praying together, coming together and praying corporately. Uh, recognizing that it's wonderful and important to, to pray at home, to pray on your own. But there are great blessings in praying together as well. I'll just briefly review what we noted about that a week ago. That corporate prayer expresses and it grows the unity of the church. Uh, we noted, secondly, that corporate prayer uh, is a way that we can bear each other's burdens. We can hear and share and, and take on, in a sense, the, the burdens of our family, outwardly and audibly, uh, as an encouragement. Uh, thirdly, Corporate prayer brings greater glory and thanks to God. And, and we considered a particular statement of, of Paul in one of his letters uh, to that effect. Fourthly, we noted that Jesus seems to attach, in some sense, greater power and blessing to corporate prayer, to coming together to pray, um, where two or three are gathered. And, and we, we noted the, the, the context of that, but that, 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 that statement of Jesus, but that it certainly has application uh, more broadly to prayer as well. We also consider prayer, corporate prayer as an opportunity to exercise together uh, our wartime walkie-talkie. That was, that was a John Piper phrase, our wartime walkie-talkie as, as the church militant. Uh, and then finally, we noted the opportunity, the blessing of uh, hearing other people pray uh, as, a, as a means of maturing our faith. Right? Hearing other people and, and maybe where they're stronger and we're weaker or where they have a, a different emphasis in, in their faith or clearer understanding or different emphasis in, on, on Christ and who he is and all kinds of ways that we can hear and be matured uh, in the way that we pray and, and in our faith as well. So just another encouragement uh, to that, to corporate prayer here. Well, secondly, let's consider the prayer that's actually prayed here. By a church in Christ uh, and a church in crisis uh, as a model of prayer. And note that the, the prayer that the, the church prays here, they don't just dive right into desperate request, which certainly would make sense uh, given what they've just heard from Peter and John, uh, this threat that the, the leaders never want to hear the name of Jesus again. But they don't just dive into desperate requests. They begin first with indicatives. They begin with indicatives, and an indicative is simply a statement of fact. It's a statement of the way that things are. 
Uh, not yet a prayer for the way they hope things to be. They begin here with praying the attributes of God. More specifically here, praying the sovereignty of God. Uh, look at verse 24 where the prayer begins. O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Uh, Lord, it is you. The, the word that's translated here uh, as Lord is the Greek word despotes. And you can hear that our English word despot comes from that Greek word. And in English, that word has almost entirely negative uh, connotations, of course. And to be a despot is not usually a good, a good thing. Uh, but in, <clears throat> in ancient Greek, it has no negative connotations. It's just a neutral word that means someone who's a master, someone who is in control, someone who has authority. Uh, this is who they praise God as, and then they praise him as creator. And so the prayer begins with God as, as sovereign God over all people, over all creation, as, as we get to verse 25 in a bit, over all of history. And, and it's not that these are things that God needs to hear as if God doesn't know them or something like that, but it's an appropriate part of prayer to begin with praise and adoration, reminders, indicatives. That, that will inform, as it does here, the rest of your prayer and, and how you make your requests. Uh, they really come back to this in, in verse 27 and 28, where it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. We're still talking about the sovereignty of God there. And in other words... The prayer is saying there, there were these rulers, the Gentiles, the, the Jews in the city of Jerusalem here. They killed Jesus, but at the same time, they were doing what you, Lord, predestined to occur. Right? This was ultimately your perfect plan. Um, it was by the will of these people. No one forced them to kill Jesus. No one, um, you know, they, they did exactly what they wanted to do, but also and ultimately, it was your will, Lord. Uh, you are sovereign. They were doing exactly as you planned. Uh, you who bring all things together for good. So this, this statement in this prayer brings together the, the free will of man and the sovereign will, the sovereign foreordination of God of all things. And, and how those things come together and work together ultimately in history, we can't know fully and exhaustively, but the scriptures teach that clearly. And, and it's, it's part of the prayer here. Uh, the beginning of the prayer, as a great comfort. Well, this prayer is also a model in its, in its first part uh, here in their praying scripture. So first, in praying indicatives, proclaiming the sovereignty of God as a basis of their prayer. But secondly, they also pray the scriptures. Uh, look at 25, verse 25 and 26 again. Uh, you who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why do the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devised futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Uh, this is the beginning of Psalm 2 that they quote here. The beginning of Psalm 2. So as these believers went to prayer in this crisis, they considered their situation. They thought, how does the word of God speak to us, assure us, direct us, remind us? And they landed on Psalm 2. Included in part of their prayer. Here are a few ways that, that Psalm 2 speaks directly to their situation there. Why it's an appropriate part of their prayer. It, it opens up with a plea to God about the Gentiles or the nations raging. 
or scheming or making you know, malicious plans. Uh, the kings and rulers gathering against the Lord and his people. And this is exactly what the church there is experiencing. Right? The rulers of Jerusalem and the, thinking back just not long before the death of Jesus, the, the rulers of the world, in a sense, uh, plotting against the Lord and his people. Uh, secondly, the psalm pictures these, these kings and rulers and people taking a stand against, more specifically in verse 26, the Lord and his Christ. The Lord and his Christ is what Psalm 2 says. Do we, do we actually sing the name of Christ in the Psalms? Yes, we do. Uh, Christ means anointed one. And so often uh, that's how it's translated in the Old Testament or in the Psalms as anointed. Uh, but the, the Hebrew word translated into, transliterated into English, of course, is Messiah. Uh, the, the Greek word is transliterated as Christ. Right? Messiah, Christ, anointed, it's all the same word uh, in the scriptures. In Psalm 2 that we're going to sing a little bit later after the sermon, uh, in, in our Psalter it's translated Messiah here. Uh, this psalm originally, immediately, probably about David as God's anointed. He was one of God's anointed um, and God's assurances to David. Um, but the Jews uh, generally, long before this time, were understanding Psalm 2 consistently as ultimately about the Messiah. Uh, some of what it says, like Psalm 72 and other psalms, can't possibly simply be about David and clearly points ahead to, to the anointed, to the Christ. And the New Testament repeatedly uses Psalm 2 uh, to point us to Christ, to show, it how, show us how it speaks of Christ. And so part of the comfort here, as well as the persecution that they were experiencing, uh, was ultimately against Christ himself. Uh, these, these rulers were taking their stand against their king, Jesus. And, and a third thing that the church is uh, praying as an appropriate and comforting thing in this psalm is that it points to the futility of, of the plots and the scheming uh, of people against the Lord and his Christ. Look at verse 25 again. Uh, the peoples devise futile things. Uh, futile things. And that's really the point of Psalm 2. Uh, that The point of Psalm 2 is, is that uh, this, is, this is futile for them to do, to struggle against the Lord. Most of you, so here are the first couple of verses of Psalm 2 that are quoted here. Most of you probably know the very next verse. Uh, what, is, what is God's response to the scheming of the nations against him? He laughs, right? God sits in heaven and laughs. And what, is he, what does he say? Uh, he says simply, I have set my king to reign. Right, and this is... This is surely part of the church's confidence here. Jesus is reigning. God laughs and says, my king is reigning. There's nothing more to be said in a sense. Um, he goes on, the, the psalm goes on later, uh, picturing God saying, tell, telling the rulers of the world to kiss the son, right? To, to bow the knee to his Messiah, to his Christ, uh, or be destroyed. Uh, and so this is... Why this is such an appropriate and comforting song for them. You'll, you'll see how their praying scripture guides the rest of their prayer uh, and their faith. Now, the, the outworking of the raging of God's enemies is, uh, for us, for the church here in Acts 4, it's not a laughing matter, right? It, Psalm 2 speaks of God laughing in response, in a sense, but um, it would be hard for the church, right? It still is hard for the church. But the ultimate outcome will make the plans of those who hate God and oppose God laughable. 
right? And the greatest example of that is, is in the cross, right? And these are people who had just seen that powerful example. All of the scheming and power of the world was, was made utterly, utterly futile in a moment when Jesus rose from the dead. All right? And that was a paradigm for all of those who are in Christ. Uh, how much more futile are the plans of the enemy of the church now that Jesus reigns from heaven with all power? The peoples devise futile things. The Lord reminds us that those who oppose us oppose the Lord Jesus. And that's what the church was reminding themselves of in, in praying the scriptures here. And until those who oppose the church come to repentance, all of their plotting, all of their consolidating power, all their mocking and perverting and litigating in this world is for nothing. Right? It's, it's a waste of time. To strive against Jesus, it's like trying to start a car without an engine or trying to stop a car hurtling down a mountain without brakes. Uh, it's, it's futile. So again, here's a model for us in how to begin prayer. Beginning with the attributes of God, beginning with Scripture. And, and, and not that every prayer needs to begin that way. You know, when we have our uh, open time of prayer here together, it's, not, it's, it's perfectly appropriate to briefly mention a request to not every prayer has to begin with an eloquent statement of God's attributes and, and so on. Um, but especially as we're facing trouble, as the church faces difficulty, it's a great lesson here. Uh, to think, what, what attributes of God ought I to remember and praise him for and, and apply to this situation? What, what scriptures uh, speak to this situation and how I should think and how I should behave and how I, how I can pray? Well, that brings us then to their uh, humble, kingdom-centered requests. Uh, letter B on your outline. Their humble, kingdom-centered requests. The request part of the prayer is only verses 29 and 30. And there are a couple, a couple parts, a couple requests that they make. Verse 29 begins, And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Take note of their threats. Or uh, look upon their threats. If you have a different translation, it might say that. What, what do they mean? What is this request? I think it's, it's reflecting a confidence that God will see this wrong, see this injustice, uh, see this striving against his church. There's no request here to do anything specifically, but, but it's asking, Lord, don't, don't leave this without justice ultimately. Take note of their threats. It, it may not be your will to act now, uh, but we, we leave this to you, Lord. Take note of it. And verse 29 goes on, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence or all boldness. Essentially, the prayer is, Lord, Lord, take note, see what they're doing, and don't let it hinder your gospel. Right? Don't let it hinder your gospel. One of the most remarkable things about this prayer, again, remembering what, what they have just heard, uh, the fearful things they've just heard from Peter and John, is what they don't say is what they don't ask. And, and what makes it a humble kingdom-centered request, they don't ask for protection. Uh, they don't, there's nothing specific against these unbelieving, threatening rulers. It's, Lord, take note of this and, and let your gospel advance. And not that those, it would be wrong for them to, to ask for protection. Maybe they did other times, or maybe even in this time they did. It's not part of what the Holy Spirit's recorded for us here as uh, the focus, the main concern of their prayer, though. There are basically two concerns here. They, they're asking for confidence or for boldness, 
faithfulness, courage, love enough for the Lord, love enough for the lost to continue to speak Christ. And they're asking that the name of Jesus would go out, that the kingdom would advance despite these threats, despite their, their, the ways they're going to suffer. Uh, verse 29, again, uh, grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Uh, they're praying that the preaching and that the miracles that attended those at times in the name of Jesus would continue to go out to the glory of God. Uh, there's something actually oxymoronic uh, seeming here in verse 29 in their prayer. Um, when they say, grant your bondservants may speak with all confidence or boldness. Uh, I recall we talked a couple weeks ago about, about that word confidence or boldness that it was used in ancient Greek sometime to speak of the, the freedom. It was used with the nuance of freedom that free citizens of Rome had to, to do as they pleased more than, more than others might um, without fear. But they're, they're asking this as bondservants, as slaves. So these are not two words that would ever be associated uh, in ancient Greek. A, a slave acting with great freedom. Uh, so it's, it was sort of a, a strange thing in that sense uh, for them to say. Uh, this freedom, this boldness is a word that would be used of the well-off, the powerful, or a master of slaves. But as bondservants of Christ the King, having just prayed to, to the sovereign God who's their God, the God of Psalm 2 who anticipated this conflict, who is sovereign over it, who ultimately sits in heaven and laughs with perfect confidence because his king is reigning, because his, his plan will not be thwarted. Uh, those bondservants can pray for boldness and have boldness because of that. I think a, lesson, uh, a lesson in this prayer for us uh, you know, when we face trouble, when we face crisis, I think easily we spend too much time praying just to get out of that thing, right? Uh, to get back to normalcy, to get back to comfort. Lord, take this away. Make me comfortable again. Rather than praying for faithfulness, for strength, for sanctification to get through this thing that we are experiencing by, under God's sovereignty, praying for the glory of God, praying for the advance of his kingdom, through this thing. And not that praying for relief is wrong, but we, we tend easily to be one-sided and self-focused in, in the way that we pray over against the example here, perhaps. And I, I've made that point many times. I'll continue to make it, if only because I need to hear it uh, repeatedly. Uh, it's reflected in Paul's prayers. Again, Paul never once, even though he's writing to, to persecuted and suffering churches, and tells them so much about how he's praying. Never once in his letters does he say, guys, I'm praying so hard that this, this hard thing will end. I'm praying so hard that life will be quiet and easy for you again, that, that God would just take this away. Never once. Rather, Paul prays for, that you would have strength in this trial, that you would be sanctified, that, you, that the gospel would advance. When he asks for prayer for himself, that's what he says. He, do, he, never, he never says, you know, First of all, pray that I'll get out of prison. No, he says the gospel's still advancing even though I'm in chains and pray that it would continue. So there's a model for our prayers in that. Look finally then at uh, Luke's one verse comment here on the, the result of this church coming together as a community, turning immediately to prayer uh, and praying for boldness and for the advance of Jesus' name. 
verse 31, where it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Uh, Basically, verse 31 describes Pentecost again. It happens again here. Um, All the pieces. God gives a sign, as he did at Pentecost. Um, People are filled with the Holy Spirit, as they were at Pentecost. Uh, And what is the the filling of the Holy Spirit for in Acts? As I've said a good number of times by now, it's for speaking boldly about Jesus each time. And that's again what happens here. And God hears their prayers and um, sends a, an earthquake of sorts. The, the room they're in at least shakes uh, violently as, as, a, as a confirmation, it seems, of his power with them. And there's, there's various speculations uh, among commentators about why, uh, why an earthquake, what specifically that means or illustrates. Um, I, I don't want to speculate. I think we speculate too much about that. We're on shaky ground, pun intended. Um, but I think this, this observation at least is warranted. Uh, you know, normally an earthquake or, you know, if, if you're sitting in a room praying and the room starts shaking violently, that'd be terrifying, right? It'd be dangerous. An earthquake is a bad, dangerous thing. Uh, but here it's, it's clearly understood as God's answer. And clearly God is, is, un, is in control of this shaking. It's, it's his answer to prayer, and it comes with the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, there, there are parallels in that, in, in the ways that God would answer their prayers moving forward, as we'll see in the book of Acts. As they go out, as they face very scary and dangerous, like an earthquake, uh, things, threats, and so on, uh, yet God is sovereign over all of it. He's in control of it. Uh, and perhaps that's uh, the illustration and the, con- the confirmation for them. Uh, and so we read, they began to speak the word of God with boldness. And may we do the same. Uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your word again this morning uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, we thank you for the example you put forward here of, of a church that's united to you and seeking you. Uh, acting as uh, community, acting as your family, turning to you immediately in prayer, uh, reminding themselves as, as weak sinners of your sovereignty, uh, of your perfect plan in your Christ. Um, and we pray that uh, our prayers would reflect that, that we would turn to prayer um, in such an eager way, uh, that we would um, be reminded of your attributes in our prayers Uh, and that our prayers would be uh, for the sake of your glory and your kingdom. Uh, We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.